Hey men, welcome to the FaithBridge Men Podcast. I'm your host, Mace Perez. FaithBridge Men exist to transform men's lives through the power of the gospel, to develop a band of brothers, and to inspire, encourage, and equip men to live lives of eternal significance. We know that real men like you are wrestling with real questions that have profound implications for your lives. So, we want to tackle those questions head-on this summer in our Summer FAQs podcast series. Today's question is one that every man has wrestled with, the so-called problem of evil. In other words, we have all wrestled with the question, how can a good God allow bad things? I know every man has wrestled with this because every man has suffered and has watched loved ones suffer and has seen horrific suffering all over the news. The parent who lost an excruciating battle with cancer, the chronic illness, the child who suffers from debilitating depression, the innocent lives caught in the crossfire of a war. This question has caused many men to question their faith or even reject the Christian faith altogether. So it's one that we must tackle which is why I'm incredibly grateful for our guest today. Joining me on the podcast today is Sten Eric Armitage. Sten Eric, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks. It's great to be here. So um, tell us, the men of FaithBridge who are meeting you for the first time, just a little bit about yourself, your family, what you do for a living, and uh, a little bit of your faith story as well. Sure. Uh, Just to make it really short, uh, I'm married to Lisa. We have uh, five amazing daughters, and as of 23 days ago, I am officially a grandpa. Little Magnolia was born, Aww. so that's exciting. Congrats. Uh, what I what I do, uh, I've pastored in the DFW area for about 10 years, and I've been teaching at DTS since 2011, and I'm currently an assistant professor of pastoral ministries and spiritual formation uh, at the seminary, and absolutely love what I get to do. Uh, my faith story is not uncommon in that I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I, in fact, grew up in a blatantly atheistic home and was encouraged to uh, not fall for the mythologies of these other systems uh, when I was a kid. So I didn't come to faith until later in life. I was 26, 27 years old when the Holy Spirit hit me upside the head with a two by four and the Where he did that and how he did that is a story that's too long for this podcast, but suffice it to say, I was uh, in a prison cell and God used a man that uh, had ministered to my wife in the past to visit me frequently, and that's where the Holy Spirit got a hold of me. And from prison to preaching, uh, an unlikely path, but it's just a picture of both God's sense of humor and his incredible mercy and grace in our lives. Wow. Yeah, what a, a, a powerful story. I, I hope that we can have you back on the podcast one day and you can share the, the long version, but even the short version is certainly a testimony to the, the grace of God. You, you used a phrase in there that, that made me chuckle a little bit. You talked about the Holy Spirit hitting you with a two-by-four. One of the men <laughs> that we had on a previous podcast episode sharing his faith story, uh, he likes to talk about how he got hit with the Holy Spirit truck. So, you know, kind of similar <laughs> metaphors there of just how our life can be just going one direction, and then the Lord says, uh, yeah, we're not doing that anymore. Come follow me. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's good. Well, I wanted to interview you for this topic because um, for one of the classes that I took 
during my time at Dallas Theological Seminary, you saw, you taught a series of guest lectures on the problem of evil. And so clearly, this is a, a topic that you've given a lot of time, energy, research, and thought to. And so to, before we get too much into the weeds, just out of curiosity, what drew you um, to study this topic so thoroughly? Hmm. Um, well, as you said in your introduction, uh, there's no one listening to this podcast, there's nobody that we know that hasn't experienced either firsthand or watched someone else going through significant suffering in their lives and asking that question, why, why, why in the world does this happen? And my family is, is no exception to that. Uh, there was a season where my youngest daughter was, was very ill and in the hospital and we genuinely didn't know if she was going to make it. And I was asking God a lot of difficult questions. And so that was, I would, my introduction, I think, to the the why God on a personal level, uh, which really, at that point, it's not a why God question. It's more of a why me question. Uh, but still, it's the, it's the same question. And then on the nerdy side, uh, in academics, my doctoral research has been focused on the concept of beauty and how it relates to God. And you can't think deeply about beauty and how it's revealed through the Godhead without recognizing, hey, evil is a very real thing. How do I reconcile these questions? Right. So we look out at the world and we can see a lot of beauty, but we can also see how that beauty has been marred, right, even in our in our own right. lives. Uh, I know a phrase that you and I have, have talked about before is this idea of the vandalization of shalom, right? That when right. God created all things, it was good. There was perfect peace. It was shalom. But that shalom has been vandalized. And so we experience little tastes of that shalom here and there, but we can all resonate with that that idea of, but I've also experienced the vandalization of shalom. Mm. Yeah. So um, as we get into the topic, the problem of evil, or again, how we often hear it phrased, how can a good God allow bad things? Um, beyond just a, a theoretical question that a skeptic might pose, this is a question that, as we've talked about, we all have to, to wrestle with. All of us have faced hardships, trials, tragedies. So uh, I'm just going to throw it out there pretty broadly and let you take it away. How can and should Christians think about the problem of evil? In other words, how can a good God allow bad things? Yeah, that that's an incredible question and one that has plagued believers uh, for not centuries, for, for millennia. And it is a, it's, it's a difficult question. It's a big question. And the basic answer is we trust in the character of who God is, not the circumstances that we find ourselves in. But that's really easy to say. It's easy to say in the moment. And so the way that I look at this, and I love the vision statement that you gave at the beginning of the podcast, um, the men who are listening to this, every single one of them are going to have opportunities and I would say even responsibilities to pastorally enter into situations, whether it's with friends or loved ones or a coworker, uh, to be with them during times of suffering. And so it's important for us as Christians to think through, all right, how do I deal with the pastoral problem of evil, which is how do I as a Christian come alongside someone who's suffering with this question. But before we can do that, in order to be equipped to deal with the pastoral problem of evil, we need to engage the 
underlying intellectual issues. And so this can sometimes be seen as, as dry and, hey, this is just philosophy. Uh, well, everything is just philosophy when we consider what knowledge is. And if we want to be able to comfort and speak wisdom and truth into someone's life in these difficult times, we need to deal with the hard questions first. So let me expand the question. Uh, how can a good God allow bad things? The way that this has formally been proposed from critics of Christianity is, all right, your claim is that in theism, God exists. Okay, there's number one. And it's not just that God exists. God exists and is omnipotent, meaning lacks no power. He's omniscient, which means he lacks nothing in regards to knowledge and is perfectly good. That's your first claim. The second claim is there is evil. And we can't deny that. We just have to open our eyes and see that there's evil. So as Christians, we need to recognize, okay, God exists and is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent, perfectly good, and there's evil. And those two things aren't mutually exclusive. Right. They, they don't create a contradiction. But they seem to. And this has been considered to be one of the best arguments against the Christian faith through the history of the church. Uh, we have the writings of uh, philosophers in the second and third century proposing this exact thing. And, and this is the way it goes. If, if God knows everything and is all powerful and is all good, well, if he knows everything, he knows that that bad thing is going to happen. And if he's all powerful, he could stop it. If he's all good, he would want to stop it. Right. So one of those can't be true. He's either all powerful and all knowing, but doesn't really care. Or he's all powerful and he really cares, but he's not omniscient. He doesn't perfectly know. So he's surprised by evil just as we are. So he just plays a good chess game. Or he knows it's coming and he's a good God, but he's not powerful enough to prevent it from happening. Right. So your claim that God exists the way that you describe him doesn't work. Take that Christianity, you lose. Right. And that's a tough one. And if we had more time on this podcast, we could look at how Christians and pastors and theologians through the centuries have attempted to answer this challenge. And they have provided some good comfort and some good truth, but they didn't answer the challenge. The, the challenge remained. But here's the good news. Uh, the good news comes with some hard work. Uh, but in the 1970s, a, a philosopher by the name of Alvin Plantinga wrote a little book called God, Freedom, and Evil. And in that little book, he proposes a complex philosophical formula, which I'm not going to go into in detail in here because nobody's got time for that. Uh, <laughs> but we are going to talk about it roughly. Uh, and that philosophical model has satisfactorily defeated the logical problem of evil to where it is no longer recognized by secular philosophers as a slam dunk against Christianity. Mm. They've had to move on to other theories of evil in order to criticize Christianity. Mm. So just a quick comment. This is huge. Uh, plaguing the church for centuries and what planning has provided is a potential answer. And the reason I say potential is it doesn't have to be right. And this is the thing about philosophy. If you can provide something that disproves the claim that these two premises can't exist, that thing doesn't actually have to be true. I, I happen to believe it is, 
but that thing doesn't have to be true. We've just proven that your philosophical problem isn't a problem. Right. There's, so if, there's if at least one that, plausible solution, right? That's right. That's right. And one thing I tell my students when we're going through this in detail is uh, you don't need to agree with this conclusion to present it as a defeater for the logical problem of evil. Uh, because all it takes to defeat a problem is something that demonstrates the problem is not really a problem. Right. That there is an answer. Because the non-Christian claim is that these two things can't exist. God can't be all good, all powerful, and all knowing, and evil exists. That that there's an absolute claim that this is impossible. And so as long as we exactly. can show that yeah. it is possible, there's at least one possible solution, their claim, you know, falls apart. Exactly. And, and to be uh, a technical philosophy nerd, uh, what's often said is that's a contradiction. Uh, so therefore, contradictions can't exist. You know, I can't be wearing a blue shirt and not be wearing a blue shirt simultaneously. That's right. the law of non-contradiction. It's basic thinking. Uh, the thing is, it's not a contradiction. A, a contradiction is something that speaks directly against itself. And that's not what the problem is. What it is, is something that appears to be implicitly inconsistent. And things that are inconsistent can be demonstrated to be consistent if the necessary truth connects them. And that's what Flanagan did is he found this necessary truth. So to keep us from going too far into the woods, into the, the weeds, uh, let's just talk about this idea. An omnipotent, omniscient, perfectly good God would have no good reason for allowing evil. Right. That's the, that's the presupposition In, of the attack, right? Right. Yeah, that's taking their the two propositions that they're saying are inconsistent and putting them into a sentence. And that's what they're saying. In, in order for, on one hand, in order for them to say that, uh, they would have to be claiming to have knowledge equivalent to or greater than that of God himself. Uh, because how can I say, well, an omniscient being would have no good reason for doing X. Well, I would have to be an omniscient being in order to make that claim. Uh, I, I don't possess all possible knowledge, right? So that's, that's one thing. Uh, now, what we want to do is when we're looking at the problem of evil on the intellectual side is remember, hey, we're doing this so that when we are personally going through suffering or we're coming alongside someone who's going through suffering, we're not going to be spitting all this philosophy at them. Right. This isn't how we comfort them. What I encourage people to do is let's look at the text of Scripture and let's look at what God has revealed through his creation so that we think well about suffering, evil, and the character of God when things are relatively calm. Right. So when the, the storms of life smack into us, that we have some solid ground that we're standing on. It doesn't mean the suffering is going to be easy, uh, but it gives us, hey, you know what? I thought about this when all was well. And all is not well in my life right now. Uh, but I know who God is. And I know where my confidence is. Right? So here's, here's the idea uh, that Alvin Plantinga put out there. It, it rests on uh, a couple of presuppositions. And this is where some people are going to disagree with the presuppositions themselves. themselves and that's okay. Uh, the first one is God is exactly what we describe. All-knowing all-powerful, perfectly good. Uh, the second one is that humanity possesses free will, true free will. 
you know, the, if you want to impress people at the coffee shop next time you're talking about it, you can say metaphysical libertarian free will. Uh, <laughs> that is a very technical kind of free will, which means there is no case in which this person or being isn't truly free to do otherwise. So this podcast, uh, if I am unable to not do this podcast for some reason, then I'm not truly free. But it seems as though I'm free. I could say no to Mace and not do the podcast. Uh, maybe a better example is, let's say there's two doors in the back of a room. And I'm looking at those two doors. And someone tells me, are you free to choose which door you're going to go out of? Are you going to go out the door on the left or the door on the right? Can you choose and be free? And I look at that and say, yeah, I can, I can choose either door. And I choose the left door. And I walk up the stairs and I head out the left door and open it and go down the hall and I'm out. What do I think? Ah, I'm free. I exercise my free will. What I don't know is that if I had opened the right door, there was a brick wall behind it. So I would have had to go out the left door anyway, which means even though I have the perception that I was free, I'm not free. I would have had to have gone out the left door. Right. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. So in order to be truly free, both doors need to be completely open. So the idea of a free creature in this is very important because we're going to say God is all powerful. I think that's a good thing to say, uh, which means he could create as he wants to create. But where does evil come from? Uh, Mace, if, if someone asks you that, uh, where did evil begin? What would you say to them? Not God. <laughs> Thank all you. Right. Good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, you know, which is what, what makes it challenging, right? Is, is if, uh, you know, we believe that scripture does teach God is all knowing, all powerful, um, and all good, and evil exists. You know, then the 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 charge is naturally going to be, um, well, then God, if God created all things, right? And that, like, with my family right now, we're we're starting to work on different memory verses. So the very first one, we're starting mm -hmm. in the beginning, right? God in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we're starting with discipling our children. God created all things. Well, does that mean God created evil? Well, no. Well, how does that work? Great question. That's, right. That's a great question. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, and this is where the wrestling comes in because uh, if we look at Adam and Eve in the garden, or if we go back even further and we, we look at that serpent who tempted them, who is clearly uh, one who is not operating in the plan of God's goodness. Right. right? Uh, well, where did they come from? Uh, where did that thought of evil come from? And so this, when we're looking at the problem of evil through this lens of free will and God's power, goodness, and knowledge, uh, there's two different directions that we could take. Uh, the term theodicy, you, you guys may have uh, heard of or read this word, and a theodicy is something that attempts to provide God's actual reason for allowing evil. And sometimes we hear this. Uh, I remember a popular preacher back in the 80s and 90s during the AIDS epidemic. Uh, he provided a reason why God allowed AIDS to come to this, to come to humanity. Uh, there's a problem with that. Scripture does not make that clear, right? Uh, particularly with contemporary tragedies, right? right. Uh, how, and we don't dare speak for God on things like that. Uh, so we can't possibly know the actual reason God might allow something. 
So we don't want to create a theodicy. What we want to do is think through a defense. Uh, a defense is something that provides a possible or sufficient reason as to why God might allow evil and suffering. That's, that's all we need is a possible reason. So types of evil. I, I mentioned AIDS. Um, the, the things like cancer, uh, AIDS, Alzheimer's, earthquakes, hurricanes, floods. These are, are evil. These are huge evils. They exist as a result of the fall. Creation's broken. Uh, but we would call those things a natural evil. Uh, those are evil that is not resulting from the free actions of a creature, right? right. Uh, from a Christian point of view, uh, there's really no such thing as a natural evil because those things do come about because of the fall of humanity. Right. So because right. the first man and the first woman uh, doubted God and acted in their pride to take something that wasn't theirs, uh, we're living in the, the in a world ravaged by the consequences of that decision. Right. right. When you but trace still, all the dominoes back say, to the, the root, it was um, a human exercising their will to defy God, right? Exactly, yeah. So we can trace it back to humanity, but what we don't want to do is say the tsunami that struck Japan was because the Japanese people were wicked. Right. No, 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 no. Uh, the, it is a human problem, but that tsunami didn't happen because of creaturely activity today, right? So that's natural evil. Uh, the other type of evil is moral evil. Uh, that's evil that results from creaturely activity. So the free will defense is what I'm talking about, and it's something that was first proposed by a medieval thinker named Augustine, uh, uh, early medieval period. Uh, Alvin Plantinga took Augustine's defense and built on it and made it sound. Uh, and it's impressive. So here's the idea. We say that God is all powerful. When we say that, we don't like to think about things that God can't do, right? We, we all remember BBS or Iwana and we have that song, my, my God is so good, so strong and so mighty that there's nothing my God cannot do. Right. Yeah. Is that true? Is that a true statement? Is there nothing our God cannot do? We want to say yes. I mean, the Sunday school answer is, yeah, yeah, right, God, yeah, of course. God can do anything. Well, what does the scripture have to say about that? Uh, scripture tells us that when we are faithless, God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Right. Uh, we also read that uh, uh, God uh, will not be mocked, and he cannot lie. Right. So, so here's a couple of things. That mm -hmm. he, he can't lie. Uh, he, he can't deny himself. What does that mean? He can't deny his own character in the way that he acts. Right. So it goes back to that contradiction, is, right? God right. can't be yeah. good and evil. God or exactly. good and not good. Right. So he cannot yeah. do something that would be a violation of his own character. Exactly. So, he is unable to do certain things that would be a denial of his character. But we say that he's all powerful. So is he lacking power? Uh, well, no, uh, I, I would argue that the, the power to sin is not a power. Uh, the, the power to sin, something that I possess and I'm, I'm pretty sure Mace possesses it. Y'all can examine his life. To determine <laughs> if, 
Uh, I'll save you all the trouble. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Uh, so this is a strange thing to think then. We can do things that God can't because we can sin. So we possess a power that he doesn't. But sin isn't a power that's possessed. Sin is the consequence of an action done. So a power to do something is going to have a, in, in the case of morality, a morally good or a morally evil result. Um, lifting up a marker that's blue is a power exercised. And then I reach over and pick up a green marker. Well, what have I done? I've exercised the exact same power lifting up a marker, but the results were different. Right. First time it was a blue marker. Second time it was a green, but the power is the same. So God lacks no possible power, but whenever God exercises his power, they always result in a consequence that reflects his character. So they will never result in a sinful action. So the power to sin isn't an actual power. It's the result of power exercise. And God will never exercise his power in a way that's sinful. Does that follow? I think so. So let me give an example and see if I'm, I'm tracking with you. So my mind goes back to the yeah. garden, right? Humanity had the power to eat fruit. They right. could have eaten fruit from literally every other tree except for one, <laughs> right. and it all would have been well. They chose to eat a fruit, and that action was sinful, not because eating fruit, the power to eat fruit is a sin, but because of uh, the result, because it was a violation of God's command. Am I kind of picking up what you're putting down? Yeah, you got it. The, the tree right next to the tree with the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, the exact same power exercise just would have been a tasty pear. Uh, but they moved one tree over, and the same power resulted in an act of disobedience and doubt and pride. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that's an important thing for us to recognize. God is all-powerful. So this next sentence I'm going to say is what uh, throws people off if I don't talk about God's power first. Uh, Perhaps God could not create a world with moral goodness, but no moral evil. So God couldn't create a world where moral good exists, but moral evil wouldn't happen. And that's a question I'll, I'll often hear from people, whether it's at the seminary or in the church or, or discipling young people. Well, why couldn't God have just created us good in the first place, so all this sin never would have happened. Right. Uh, I refer you to Genesis 2. He did. Yeah. Uh, very good, actually. Very good. Yeah, exactly right. So, so here's the response that I give to that. Perhaps the concept of goodness uh, requires freedom. And, and the illustration I give is my wife, Lisa, is uh, amazing at many things. Uh, she's an incredible carpenter. She, she works with soil and soil ecology. She's fantastic. Uh, but one of the things I particularly enjoy about her gift set is she is an amazing cook. And she has mastered recipes for certain kinds of cookies that when people who know her know that she's making these cookies, the list of requests comes out. These, <laughs> these cookies are evidence of the goodness and beauty of God. Is what these cookies are. <laughs> so, Let's say Lisa makes a, a batch of these cookies and then she puts them on the table and then she thinks, all right, well, then Eric and the girls are going to come home and they're going to eat these cookies and they're for someone else. So I'm going to put a note in front of those cookies saying, do not eat these cookies. 
But then she remembers the life that she's had with us. She goes, you know what? That note is insufficient. So she goes ahead and she puts the cookies inside of a titanium vault with a biometric security system and a complex alphanumeric passcode that needs to be entered in. And she seals it in the vault. But then she remembers that uh, uh, her husband was in prison and probably learned how to crack into that <laughs> safe. Uh, so she sets up an elaborate uh, network of, of lasers and security systems and a couple of rot. We just keep building the security system comes up to the point where now these cookies are inaccessible. It's impenetrable. And I walk in, I smell the cookies, and then I see um, the safe with the lasers and guard sharks and everything around it and a note saying, please do not eat the cookies. Uh, I try, and, and I can't get through the safe, and I leave. Would it be appropriate for Lisa to then say, wow, good job, good job, honey. That is morally praiseworthy that you didn't eat those cookies. No, there's nothing morally praiseworthy there. I, no. I, I couldn't have eaten those cookies if I wanted to. Right. So the idea that something is morally praiseworthy, the person, the creature, would need to be free to choose otherwise. Right. Now, if I came in and those cookies were there and there was just simply a note and I didn't eat those cookies, okay, arguably that's, that's morally praiseworthy. I exercised restraint even though I want the cookies. I don't know if I would pass that test to be honest with you. Uh, so I certainly that, wouldn't. That's the idea. Yeah, it's, especially I, after you taste these cookies, Mace, they are life-changing. All right. So it's possible that God could not create a world with moral goodness without the possibility of moral evil. So humanity was granted that fancy phrase, metaphysical libertarian free will. And we don't know how long Adam and Eve tooled around in that garden before they finally went to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and sinned, but they did. Well, couldn't God conceive of a world where Adam and Eve would never sin? Yes. Yeah. God could conceive of that world, but the argument that Planiga builds, and there's a lot of detail here and it would be fun to, to dig into it and talk about this. Uh, but trust me, and you can go read the book if you want to, uh, God, Freedom, and Evil by Planinga. Uh, there is something that he calls transworld depravity, which sounds like science fiction. Transworld depravity suggests that no matter what state God put free creatures in, things would eventually go wrong because these free creatures are not God. Hmm. And if they are free, there is time. So it could have happened in a day. It could have happened in a year. It could have happened in a thousand years, but it was inevitable that someone at some point would use their free will to sin. Exactly. Yeah. So the, the, the statement, the response to if God can conceive of it and it's possible, then he could be, he should be able to create it. Um, if you and I were in the garden, I suspect we would not last nearly as long as Adam and Eve last. Right. Yeah. And, and especially this, if it was cookies, especially if it was a tree bearing these cookies. <laughs> yeah. If we're, if any of us were faced with Adam's option, eventually every single one of us would freely eat of the tree. God couldn't create a situation without taking away our creaturely freedoms. God's action is the same in every possible world. God's action is the same. 
to create and to give freedom. It's always man's action in all of these possibilities that result in the fall. So it, it's logically possible. We can conceive it and it holds up that Adam might not fall. That's the difference between not fall world and fall world. Uh, but the determination of what is at, of what happens does not depend on God's action alone. It depends on what humanity does with it. Right. And he created us to be free. Now, I, I just want to clarify something here before we move on to the more pastoral response. Uh, the statement that man possesses free will doesn't mean that man possesses free will in every arena of life. Uh, he has created us with freedom. Uh, and I would argue that Adam and Eve had the freedom to eat of the tree or not eat of the tree. The moment that they ate of the tree, the curse of Adam's sin is now upon humanity, this idea of original sin. So now where Adam and Eve possessed the possibility to not sin, we don't possess that same capacity. We are created, we are born into a world where by our very nature, touched by the sin of the fall, we, pass, we do not possess the ability to not sin. Right. So the only way that we become men who do not sin or are able to not sin is through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Right. And sometimes, you know, I often say that I, I walk in that capacity to not sin in bursts of up to 20 to 30 seconds at a time <laughs> <laughs> by the grace of God, right? Uh, but this idea that a loving God, a powerful God, an all-knowing God couldn't exist if there's evil in the world. He gave us our freedom, and we created evil. Right. Evil isn't a thing. Evil is the absence of good. Mm -hmm. And when we chose not to walk into the goodness that God created us to, when we chose to live in the absence of it, that's why we live in this vandalism of shalom, as you said mm -hmm. earlier. Mm -hmm. So that is a, a really high-level, quick and dirty look at uh, an answer to the logical problem of evil. Right. Not satisfying in this tight of a moment, but I hope our brief conversation on this gives some confidence. Hey, this has been talked about sure. and wrestled with and dealt with. Right. Well, you know, I, I had the privilege of sharing my faith story um, earlier this semester. And one of the things that I, you know, shared was when I first started attending church as a, a non-believer, they were doing a, a series on apologetics. And, mm. you know, what I, what I say when I share my story is I wasn't necessarily convinced of all the answers I was hearing, but it broke down this narrative that I had in my mind that Christians were only Christians because they weren't willing to ask the hard questions, right? They would, hmm. they would just ignore them. You know, the, the questions like, how can a good God allow bad things? I don't know. I'm just not going to think about it and keep going about my merry way. Certainly right. there's people that live that way, but there are also really brilliant Christian thinkers that have thought through, um, these hard questions. And I think everything that you're, you're saying uh, definitely makes a lot of sense, even though I know you're condensing. Uh, you could talk much more on, on these things. You know, we, we've talked about how, um, while this is a deep theological, philosophical problem, we're most likely not encountering this question because we're reading a philosophy textbook or a theology textbook. Right. We're wrestling with this question because of something we are personally going through or something someone we know is going through. So from a, a practical perspective, from a pastoral 
perspective, um, when we're with someone who is hurting, they're experiencing a tragedy, and they're wrestling with this, why God? You know, how could a good God allow bad things like this? Mm-hmm. Um, give us just a little bit of practical pastoral wisdom on how to respond in that moment. I, I imagine you're not going to tell us, well, you just bring out your extra copy of Planning Us, you know, God, Freedom, and, <laughs> uh, and I don't remember the title, you know, a Planning Us book and say, yeah. you know, we just keep a couple of those in your back pocket so you can just hand them out. Right. I'm yeah. assuming that's not what you're going to say. <laughs> uh, so maybe positively. <laughs> I'm so sorry for your loss. Let's talk about philosophy. Right. Yeah. Exactly. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and in fact, if, if any of you are ever tempted to do that, remove yourself from the situation. Uh, because there are times when even those things that are beautifully true can be the most hurtful things said. Um, so yeah, when we come up against suffering in someone else's life and they're asking us those questions, our response, particularly as, as Western men, as American men is we want to provide an answer. Mm -hmm. Why is this happening to me? Or why, how could God allow we want to provide an answer. And you know what? We might have some good ones. Romans eight twenty eight, 28, uh, the, the logical problem of evil defeated, you know, uh, but shut up. Uh, now is not the time to say those things. I believe more people have been wounded by Romans eight twenty eight than they have been helped mm. by it. And that's not a statement about the efficacy of scripture. Right. It's a statement about the wisdom of man. Yeah. Or the foolishness uh, of man. Well, exactly. Uh, we look at Job's friends. They did the right thing for a couple of weeks. They they showed up and they were silent. Right. So so here's when it comes to the pastoral response to the, the problem of evil. Uh, men, I would encourage you, if right now you are going through a season of suffering or of loss or of great grief, what, what I am saying is not for you and it's not to comfort you. Uh, what I am saying is to those who at this moment are on a break from that or are going through a lesser period of suffering right. so that we can think through these things well so we can respond well in those actual moments. I don't claim to have the answers and, and neither should you. And when you are hurting and someone claims to have the answer to this, flee from them mm-hmm. uh, because they don't either. And that is a principle that we should have in the back of our head when we're comforting people. We aren't there to provide answers. We are there to be the hands and feet of Christ to them in their suffering and in their pain. Um, So that the first thing that we need to do is be present. Uh, We need to be present, not attempt to provide flippant answers because some of the, the most dangerous things that we say come out in those moments. Um, uh, When, I was sitting with someone who was in the process of losing his young son. Mm. And he was saying, if only I had enough faith, this wouldn't be happening to my son. Mm. There I stepped in uh, to give an answer and say, this is not about your faith. Right. Uh, God is not restricted because you didn't believe enough. Right. Uh, that That's not the way this works. Uh, Nicholas uh, Wolsterdorf is a Christian uh, philosopher and, and teacher who has gone through great personal loss. He, he lost his son, and he talked about Christians who came in providing answers when he and his wife were suffering. And he said that 
your, your tears are a salve on our wound. Your silence and absence is salt and your ignorance wow. is additional wounds. Right. Um, that w- w- being still and being prayerful, uh, weeping with those who mourn, we should never underestimate that. And in time, if we are present, if we're generally grieving, gen- genuinely grieving with them, we may earn the right to be able to speak. Uh, but we need to be careful to speak before we've earned the right, or it's the right, it's just the wrong time to be speaking. Right. I, I have more to say on that, but I want to pause because I've been rambling. <laughs> no, no, that's so good. I, the two main things that come to my mind is, is you alluded to it just a moment ago, but the, the same Paul in the same letter who wrote, that all things work together for good to those who work uh, to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Just a few chapters later, wrote, "Weep with those who weep." He didn't yep. say, "When people are weeping, see what I wrote, you know, three or four chapters earlier, and quote that to them." You know, weep with those yeah. who weep. You, you know, my mind, like like yours, goes to Job. Like they did great until they opened their mouths, um, right? But at the same time, uh, on the one hand, you know, from my personal experience, and, and then number two, um, you know, losing a child kind of puts you in a club. It's a club that mm-hmm. no one wants to be in, but you, right. get, you get put in this club and you wind up, you know, meeting and interacting with several families that have gone through something similar. And hands down... I cannot tell you how many times I've heard this, how many times my wife has heard this, that the the thing that was most hurtful to people, um, the the saying the wrong thing, like the well-meaning but kind of foolish thing, is was the second most hurtful thing. The most hurtful thing was the people who they thought were their loved ones and their friends who just disappeared from their lives. And so I, right, I, I right. think... Um, you know, my encouragement, and I, I'm sure you would agree with this, is to not let the fear that you're not going to know what to say to lead you to just disappear. At the right. very least, you can be there for them. You can say, I'm so sorry, and you can pray for them. You know, if you don't know what else to say, the two words, I'm sorry, is, is a pretty good place place to start. Um, yeah. But don't disappear. You know, be... Be there for them. Be with them. Weep with those who weep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. And it's not particularly when we're talking about something as significant as the loss of a child or or the loss of a spouse. This isn't something people get over, ever. Right. The the, the pain and the grief changes its character over time. But one thing that we don't like as a society is being uncomfortable. Right. And when I'm in a small group with someone, when we're in small group with someone and that someone is going through hell and they're going through incredible pain, that makes us uncomfortable. And we don't know what to say and we feel powerless and we don't know what to do. So we either say the well-meaning but ignorant thing, God needed another angel. Well, it was God's will that, uh, or we say nothing. And like you said, we fade away. And how hurtful is that? And we need to be present, like you said, weep, be there, and stay there. Mm-hmm. Two years later, come alongside of them. 
right. five years later, come alongside of them, not because they need to be coddled, but because the loss of their spouse, that anniversary every year is going to be a painful, difficult reminder. Right. And to have people who care about them simply say, you know, I can't imagine what you're going through, but I love you. You're not alone. Let me know if you want to get together for a cup of coffee. Uh, even just writing a note can mean so much uh, right. because two, three, four years after a loss, I've talked to so many folks who feel, and they, they leave their churches because they felt so isolated and disconnected Right. because for everyone else, Oh, that's right. I remember that funeral. Well, for them every year, if not multiple times a year, they can't help but live in light of that funeral. Right. We, we, we need to be present. Absolutely. My, my wife is, much better at it than I am. But one of the things that we have tried to get in the habit of doing is when we have a loved one who experiences a loss of um, leveraging the tool of technology, of putting a, a recurring note in our phone mm. that every year on such and such date, hey, this is when so-and-so lost their dad. This is when so-and-so lost yeah. their, their daughter. And, um, you know, when that comes up, yeah, just sending that text message, making that phone call, and it can just be as as little as, hey, thinking about you today, love you, yeah. praying for you. And um, the, the, the other thought that came to my mind is um, I'm stealing this from my wife who read it somewhere else. I wish I could credit the original author, but basically <laughs> this idea of, you know, so like we just are a couple months removed from what would have been our daughter's fifth birthday. Right. So not only was it a milestone, like a, a mm. birthday, um, but it was a pretty big one that if she were still right. alive, she'd be starting kindergarten this next school year. Right. And mm. so, you know, when her birthday came around, it's not like we just weren't thinking about her. Right. Right. Like people are afraid to say something sometimes because they're like, oh, I don't want to bring it up because I don't want to hurt your feelings. It's like, it's not like I'm not already thinking about my daughter this day. And I'm not. Just to be clear, I'm not speaking from a place of hurt to, towards anyone that we know that didn't say anything, but just that, that idea yeah. of um, they're already thinking about it. And so right. you saying right. something is not going to um, hurt them. It will only help them, you know? Um, exactly. Grief is lonely. And knowing that people are remembering uh, it means so much. And one, one last thing I want to say on this, the pastoral response. So when I say pastoral response, men, I'm talking about you. I'm not talking about the pastors. Of right, the church. right. I'm talking yeah. about our responsibility to care for one another. The reason why I think we're so often motivated to say things that seem like answers, you know, well, it was God's will. Well, God set them free from the pain that they were in. Uh, Romans eight twenty eight is because we forget about what sets Christianity apart, and that's hope. We should not run away from death, and we should not be afraid to be angry at death, and, and we should not be reluctant to acknowledge to somebody that, yeah, what's happening right now to your mother, this cancer, it's horrible. This, this sucks. This is miserable. I don't get it. I don't know why God would allow it. But that death, it should make us angry. It should make us sad because we see that Jesus, who's fully God, 
uh, when faced with the death of his friend Lazarus. And by the way, Jesus knew that he was going to be resurrecting Lazarus, right? What did he do? He, he wept. Why did Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, weep when he knew he would be bringing Lazarus back? Because death is a constant reminder of the fall. Death is a constant reminder of the consequences of sin. Death is a constant reminder that the enemy is working. But here's the thing. If death weren't the enemy, God wouldn't have sent his son to defeat it. And his son succeeded because we don't worship a sec- the second person of the Trinity didn't die on the cross and stay in the tomb. Right. He resurrected from the dead and he's the firstborn of many. So death is also in a strange way. And this isn't something you say immediately. It's something you earn the right to say later. Right. Despite our grief and our anger, which are right and appropriate, God hates death. It reminds us that death has been defeated and we have a hope, a living hope. Right. And, and that should give us great comfort and the ability to sit with someone in incredibly uncomfortable situations because we can be with them and weep and hate death and then over time remind them of the hope that we have in Christ. And that doesn't make the pain go away, right. but it does give us the ability to mourn differently than everyone else. Paul said, we grieve but we don't grieve as those with, who have no hope. Exactly right. We, we grieve, but yeah. we know that there will be an end to it one day. Yeah. And this, this life is a blink in the eye of eternity. Amen. You know, whether whether we, we live for 40 years or 12 years or 100 years, that's a blink in the eye of eternity. And our hope is in eternity. And we can live in light of it now. And and what you're talking about with the, the loss of your daughter and, and the, the close loss of another. Uh, first of all, I, I, I'm sorry that you've gone through that. And I, I can't begin to know what you and your wife have personally experienced through that. But often it's the testimony of how believers who are, are wrecked by the vandalism of Shalom in their own life stand in their confidence and their hope in who God is and what he's done that speaks more powerfully than any sermon. And it doesn't mean that that's easy for that person because it's not. But we have a hope that is greater than anything that death or Satan or this broken world can ever throw at us. That's right. And that should give us hope in the midst of every storm. Amen. So one final question as it relates to, you know, living life in this, the, the period of time we find ourselves in, post-fall, but pre-new heavens and new earth. So yeah. throughout this entire podcast series, the Men of Faith Bridge can submit questions of, of their own by going to faithbridge.org slash men. And so we have one of those today that I, I think is related to this topic of, of good and evil. And so Coyle writes in, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, and he asks, uh, essentially, how do we faithfully follow Jesus and maintain Christ-like character when we feel like the surrounding culture, including those in positions of influence, are promoting anti-Christian values? Hmm. That's a, that's a whole nother podcast. Right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, let me say two 
brief things and then poke at it. And I, I'll expand if you want me to. Uh, the first one is read First uh, Peter. First uh, Peter is a, a letter written by the disciple, the apostle Peter, in the context of being oppressed by and forced into submission by a government structure that was antithetical to uh, the Christian, uh, the Judeo-Christian claims of belief. Mm-hmm. And he wrote, what does it look like to be a faithful, good citizen of the co- country, the government that you're under, while maintaining the identity you have in Christ and the honor that you have as an image bearer of God? How, how do you maintain those things in this world? So first, right. Peter. What Peter has to say is going to be far better than anything I have to say. <laughs> but uh, re- reread that short little letter in view of that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, that That's my first response. Uh, the second is, yeah, culture uh, is a big topic, and culture isn't something that's out there. Uh, culture is something that we are a part of. Culture is something the church is in, and there are all these different subcultures. So when we're talking about the, the broader society that we live in, having that feel from the question that was being asked. Mm-hmm. We have not been called to be warriors against any societal structure or any specific culture. We have been called to be ministers of reconciliation and ambassadors for Christ. Right. So how do we as Christians live? Well, we live respectfully in accordance with the laws of our government whether we agree with them or not, unless those laws call us or demand, uh, as we see with the case of of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, to do something that is against the very law of God, um, you submit to it. And and one of the things, uh, you know, our hope is in Jesus Christ. Our hope is in the coming kingdom. And we should live in light of that now. All too often, in a society like ours, where we have the right to vote and the right to free speech, and we have uh, the right to assemble and to protest, things, by the way, I am thankful for. Right. I'm thankful that we have the freedoms that we have in this country. We start to misplace our hope into those things. Right. And we start to misplace our hope in our government officials and our government structures. Man, I got to tell you, uh, democracy, socialism, anarchy, communism— you name your governmental structure. All of those things are structures made by and controlled by and occupied by fallen sinful men and women. Right. Uh, we, we don't put our hope in the government. So how can I abide a government that allows ungodly laws to pass? I don't have hope for the government to enforce morality and Christianity for me. Um, so I am not surprised or offended when a law is passed that I profoundly disagree with, why would I expect uh, those who aren't indwelt by the spirit of God to walk consistently as if they were when even those who are indwelt by the third person of the Trinity don't Mm -hmm. we're inconsistent. So that, that's a rambling answer. But my ultimate thing is, is not to throw up our hands and give up, but to recognize I can have a voice, but I want to be a voice for who I stand for. Right. I stand for Jesus Christ, and I will defend the rights of the widow and the orphan and the oppressed. I'm not going to stand for 
any governmental system or any individual as my hope or salvation. Right. As you said, we're, we're um, fortunate to live in a country where we have rights and we have some level of voice and influence in our system, and we should use that right. for good. But at the same time, and this is why I think this question is so related to what we've been talking about, is um, our hope is not in this this life only. You know, Paul said if if that was the case, we'd be of all people most to be pitied. Like if this is the best right. you know we can do uh, and the best we have to hope for, like shoot. <laughs> but our, right. our hope is somewhere <laughs> else. So we we leverage what we can, when we can, how we can, but we cling to the hope. That, that one day um, the king will be uh, on his throne ruling the kingdom of earth uh, of God, kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven amen absolutely yeah we one last exhortation in that we need to be perpetually on guard against the idols that are being formed in our hearts and it is very easy in a society like ours where we are, we have these freedoms by the grace of God to uh, to create idols that seem righteous. But if it's not Jesus, it's not righteous. Uh, He's our hope. Everything else we turn towards with prayer and intentionality. Be a voice, but don't put your hope in that which you're putting your voice towards. Remember the object of your hope. Yeah, absolutely. Amen. Well, thank you so much for being here today and sharing all of your your great wisdom, both from, you know, a philosophical perspective, but also your your wise pastoral, um, just brother in Christ, uh, loving wisdom that you, you shared with us today. No, thanks for having me, Mace. I love you, brother. It's been good to see you on the screen. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, thank you all men for listening today, uh, to our faith bridge men podcast as we continue our summer FAQ series. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with others and be sure to rate and subscribe it to the podcast so we can get this, uh, good news, this hope out to more men. And as we continue our FAQ series, if you or someone you know has a question about life, about faith, God, or culture, go to faithbridge.org slash men and let us know your question. You can let us know your name or you can keep it anonymous. And we will catch you next time on the Faithbridge Men podcast as we continue to tackle the real questions that real men are asking head on.